Okay, guys, it goes without saying that at the moment around the world, things are pretty tricky in terms of the coronavirus, and we're all aware that sports, for the most part, have been stopped altogether. So there's a lot of coaches out there with athletes who are housebound, who are no longer training, no longer able to get into team training or any sort of physical conditioning. So what we've decided to do is to make our fundamentals programs completely free and accessible uh, via our Facebook page. So these are programs that are split up to four levels of six weeks each. Entirely bodyweight based with minimal to no equipment, completely easy to do at home with all sets, reps, progressions, videos and instructions planned out for you. So if that would solve a problem for you and your athletes, then head over to our Facebook page. You can see the video links to the YouTube channel as well as get the PDF if you comment on the stream or email us directly, then we're more than happy to give that to you. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Today I'm speaking with Andy Blythe, who is a sport and performance psychologist based in Edinburgh, specializing in one-to-one coaching to help people get better at what they care about. He's also the owner of Simply Perform, as well as the academy psychologist at Hearts Football Club. So welcome to the podcast, Andy. Hey, how are you doing, Rob? Brilliant, thank you. So for those who aren't uh, kind of familiar with you, can you give us a bit of an overview of your background and your kind of, I guess, what you do day-to-day, both in your own practice as well as in, at, at Hearts? Yep, sure. The, um, I mean, we'll start with background. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology from Edinburgh Uni, um, and anyone who's ever done undergraduate psychology will probably left the course uh, somewhat dissatisfied, realising that you know nothing about human beings, but you know a lot about chimpanzees and rats. Um, and that's not the most aspirational or necessarily the most inspiring thing for me anyway. Um, so in a state of existential angst, not knowing what the hell I'm doing in my life, I went, I like psychology, I like sport, I'm going to go and do some sports psychology. So I did a master's in sports psychology after that. And then following that, you'd have to do four years uh, as a trainee sports psychologist uh, to become a full chartered sports psychologist which I uh, reached in 2018 I think it was um, and in that time we did a lot of applied work and whatnot writing research papers and so on uh, and then so day to day I work three days a week uh, in a mental health charity I do one day at uni doing a master's in counselling um, and I work one day a week at Hearts Football Academy and then the second part of the question is, what do I do at Harps? So that's quite a, a broad range of one. Um, I largely focus on the coaches. Um, we're, I'm there one day a week. So my one of my biggest questions I often ask myself is, how can I have the most meaningful impact in that environment, given the limited time that I see the people there, from coaches, support staff, uh, and of course players, so I largely work with the coaches and trying to um, help them apply psychologically based principles, or psychology principles, I suppose, into their coaching in a day-to-day way and make that as easy as possible for them. Um, so there's a brief overview of that. There's other elements as well that we can dive into. Sure. And what about your own sporting background? What sort of sports and activities were you engaged in when you were growing up and what was your kind of journey there? Yeah. So that one, I, 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 um, 
I played badminton when I was younger. I don't know if you knew that, Rob, but we never we no, knew that. Yeah, Scottish schoolboy champion uh, way back in, God, I can't even tell you the year. Uh, doubles with my brother. Um, Should so, put that in the bio. <laughs> we should have put that in the bio <laughs> there you go I think that would have instantly given me credibility if what we've been clicking on that link if you put this on LinkedIn saying you know ex-previous Scottish schoolboy champion everyone will be clicking on that like, what's this <laughs> you know got to say the sporting god <laughs> the, um, I did that and then played badminton throughout university captain of a badminton team or not and, and Actually, I've not played since university, and most most of my time now is um, running. I was training for the marathon, but that's obviously been postponed. Last year, I did a lot of triathlons, sort of multi-sport events. Um, I quite like that, quite like sort of endurancey stuff. But I am always getting injured, always, which is quite good from an empathy perspective of the frustration of injury, and then going into the club and sitting in the rehab room, which I largely do in the evenings because that's when the boys are coming in. Um, I'm working with the long-term injured people because I'm not trying to make a career out of these sports, but these boys are, and they're chomping at the bit to get going, even if they're like six out of ten ready to return. Um, and I'm chomping at the bit just to go out for a run, you know. Um, so it's it, that's quite interesting, I suppose. But yeah, that's, that's it. So train for marathons, but right now with everything cancelled, I've got a terrible trainer set up, and I'm on my uh, road bike a lot just now as we're in lockdown mm. so going back to your kind of psychology practice and your kind of journey are there any specific kind of people experiences or, or principles that have kind of influenced you and what you do from a psychology practice perspective so well, we could unpack that question couldn't we should we do the, what do you want to do people and then principles yeah or? let's do let's do people we'll do people and then we'll do principles right we've got a shared one haven't we because when you and I first met in the glamorous uh, sites of Sainsbury's Cafe near Meadow Murrayfield Stadium, mm -hmm. we both had like an absolute geek fest over the Stoic philosophers. Particularly, uh, I, I want to say Marcus Aurelius. I can't remember if we spoke about Marcus Aurelius, but certainly Epictetus. So these are two Stoic philosophers that I'm, I'm quite into. And I think anything I do and how I talk and how I go about my world has a bit of a stoic flair to it. There's pros and cons to that, I would argue, but that's largely quite influential. It's quite an underpinning um, thing. So Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, who built Marcus Aurelius leads, um, Bill Clinton reads Marcus Aurelius's book every year, seemingly. There's mm. an interesting fact for you. Well, I know there's quite a few people who, it's one of these things like, uh, you know, whenever you listen to podcasts or, you know, hear interviews with people, they often kind of, quote it or refer back to it and it's one of those books that kind of pops up it's not every day you get insights into the life of a roman emperor well that's a, yeah, yeah there's a roman emperor who's like really compassionate and like on the edge of the battlefield slaying you know germanic hordes um, everywhere but is then writing about, about kindness and acceptance and you know love and whatnot um and emotions and all these sort of things and it, it was interesting about the book if, if anyone does go and read it is like it's it's not it's just like a couple of lines it's like it's just we i want to use the phrase and you know the historians that listen to your podcast because i know you aim for a diverse audience here um <laughs> the historians will, will cringe at this but it's literally it's like it's, it's just brain farts mm. Marcus Aurelius. at the end of the day 
jots a few ideas down on, on paper. And that, that's, that's literally it. It's like tweets. Yeah. It's like if that yeah, man yeah. had Twitter, he'd be like tweeting all the time. He'd be the one of the people that you have to like meet on your Twitter feed because you're like, oh my God, there's Marcus again at it. Mm. It is it is a lot like that actually. I mean my understanding is that obviously he never really meant for it to be mm. widespread. It's just That's his right. musings on the day and things he's reflecting on. And suddenly here we are, well, thousands of years later, still thinking, oh, he's got some useful ideas, that guy. I wonder if his pals like when he passed came across it, so his daddy and were like, Oh, we'll, we'll take the mic here, like well, look how ridiculous this boy was, and then they got a slap in the face as it started to get published and gain credibility and uh, Right, damn it, backfire mm. there because it is still bouncing around. So, for those who, who maybe haven't come across stoicism before, what would you kind of, if you had to give a bit of a summary or maybe some of the key principles, what would you kind of pull out as to why so, it might be relevant? I guess, yeah. So, Epictetus, one of his followers, wrote a book called, um, I think it's called Enchridium, uh, which is, I think was like Latin um, for the manual. And it was it was basically Epictetus' top tips for living life. I mean, this is your, the, if you want one of the first uh, top ten lists that you get on blogs these days that maybe destroy your soul because there's nothing in them. Um, but he, he he had loads of stuff in his book, and the first line is like, "Of all the things in the world, some are within our control, and other things are not." And he goes on to then describe things that are within your control and things that are not, and basically there's not as much in your control and things that are not, things like your body and wealth and all these sort of things. Which is so apt, by the way, to the current climate mm-hmm. of COVID-19 and trying to foresee what the future holds and trying to predict things, which just leads to suffering and pain and anxiety and so on. And, and it, so the Stoics were very much sort of going that, Another Epictetus quote was that man, humans, are not disturbed by events themselves, but our interpretation of the events. And there's a a significant degree of truth to that. Um, Some research, uh, and a lot of research in psychology would back that up. Um, Experience, and you'd back it up, wouldn't it? Why you'd get nervous at something, but Barry along the road there doesn't get nervous before stepping on that pitch, you know? So mm-hmm. that was a big thing. So the, the, the Stoics were all about trying to promote a worldview that helps people live emotionally tranquil lives. So living a good life, and that was the, the, the tranquil one. Neither too high, neither too down emotionally, just steady. And that's where you get, you know, that person's very Stoic, the stiff upper lip type thing, which is a misconception of the Stoic philosophy. It's not, you know, not feeling these emotions. It's, it's just getting to a point, dealing with these emotions that where you're okay with things. You come mm. to accept them. And I think if anyone Googles Stoism now, um, on they'll, they'll, there's, there's, some people are writing, bloggers and whatnot, are writing links between Stoism and Buddhist philosophy. Um, mm. So you, you, there's, a, there's like a, a, a sort of theme going on there. Yeah. I think the, the big ones that stand out for me as being, I guess, a applicable to sport but also just generally life is like that idea as you've said around pressure and it being different for different people um which ultimately comes down to your perception the big thing they obviously have is around emotional regulation isn't it about questioning why you feel certain ways is it is it that person really has it out for me or is it just my interpretation of the events and have i built this up to be something that's not um which you know when we talk about things on the pitch and people responding to events and 
having a stimulus and then this bit in the middle, which is the black box where we kind of interpret it, decide what it really means and then yeah. produce an act. That's, you know, that's so applicable regardless of what time scale you're in. And I remember reading that Marcus Aurelius um, book and there was one bit and I, I think I underlined it or highlighted it or whatever, something along the lines of, you know, don't waste your time with um, gossip and like nonsense and things that aren't of any, you know, real worth. And I just thought, man, that's social media in a nutshell, isn't it? Like <laughs> how much of Facebook and Twitter is just pissing into the wind. Yeah. Well, another one of Marcus Aurelius I really liked was, um, it was something like, worry not about the future for if you should have to meet it, you'll meet it with the same fortitude and strengths by which you met the past. And I like that. I'm like, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Like, mm. It's going to be difficult. Current times, difficult. But you can get through it, you know, not in a positive thinking way, just in a, right, well, wait a minute. Let's look at this carefully. How did I deal with previous difficulties? And anyone could do that. You know, not a question I ask injured athletes. Um, particularly long-term injuries, and if they're of a age, you know, 16 and above, this will apply to them. When have you last had to deal with a, a difficult injury and how did you manage it then? Because of course they've managed it then, because they had to manage it because they're back injured. Again, hopefully not with the same injury, of course. Um, so what did you do to, to get through that difficult time and can you bring it to the fore now? Now, how you frame that as a psychologist is, is different for different people. Um, as I said, I've done a bit of reading the Stoics, the Stoic philosophy, which I really like. The Stoic philosophers find themselves, or, or perhaps more recently, cognitive behaviour therapists will find themselves siding with the Stoic philosophers. Um, but that's not a problem, you know. I, I kind of I like reading the, the philosophies as opposed to the actual psych models. Mm. as useful as they are but um, the philosophies are far more interesting and then widely applicable to mm. presentations stepping out on the pitch injury rehabilitation relationships with nearest and dearest self-isolation <laughs> <laughs> all these things you know because they were thinking that yeah yeah so uh, so you've got epictetus and you've got marcus aurelius what other kind of personal yeah, so okay, so we we, um, we probably we dived into some of the principles there. So that's mm -hmm. that's, that's a, a CBT esque one there. Then there's the, the sort of existential arm or ilk of the cloth that I've I, I've weaved and continue to weave. Um, and and these are people like my supervisor going through the chartership, Dr. Martin Estes, sports psychologist, and the existentialists um, are quite a a broad church, the ones that I ascribe to are the, the ones who are atheists and they sort of argue they're the ones that it would be like life has no meaning and therefore we need to find meaning in it, you know, sort of thing like this. They're, they're, they're big believers in the power of the individual and, and the freedom of the individual and subsequently our responsibility to choose our way. So um, these are people like Jean-Paul Sartre, um, people like Albert Camus, um, and Albert Camus is interested. So, um, this has got nothing to do with sport, but I'll bring us back to sport. Albert Camus wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. And the Myth of Sisyphus is the guy who rolls the ball or the big boulder up the hill. Which oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it rolls back down and he then has to go back down. So Albert Camus wrote a short essay about that and he sort of argued that, um, he sort of argued that, you know, that's a metaphor for life and that life is absurd and meaningless and we get caught up in stupid things and you know therefore why do we even take part in, it, in that, 
that game, the game of life. Um, and he, the point that he gets at is like, look, see, to give up, that is letting the game win. And the act of revolt, revolting against the game, walking yourself back down to the bottom of that hill and pushing that stone again, over and over again, gives you meaning because you're giving the gods, so to speak, or life two fingers and saying, I will get this done. So it's like, it's got a gritty, empowering um, message. It's getting a great metaphor for long, long-term injured athletes. Mm. Mm. What they've got to do every single day, they've got to go back into the gym or in the rehab suite, then they've got to back, do the exact same thing, albeit somewhat changed, no doubt, because of the physio, uh, physios and sports science staff supporting with that. But it's the same process, isn't mm. it? Mm. Is it? Well, one thing I particularly would most like to be doing that is playing or doing whatever their sport is. But they can't. And they have to go through the drudgery of every day turning up, doing the rehab, maybe not having the same social contact, maybe not feeling like a footballer or a rugby player or a swimmer, um, missing out, FOMO. And they go do it. They just have to do it. Like, the more they don't do it, the more chance they're probably going to get one of not getting back to the same level that we're at, but two getting re-injured again. So they are sports sisyphists. That's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I know I, I, it could go wrong as well because it's not, not, not too far away from Sisyphus to syphilis. So. Yeah. Suddenly <laughs> having a different conversation about Alexander the Great. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So so they're quite influential as well, these, these sort of thoughts. Um, on that there. I mean, I, I, could go, I could go on. Uh, I don't want to bore everyone with thinking thought I'd you know, tuned into a sports science podcast and now we're talking about bloody philosophy. Um, but I think it's very applicable um, hmm. to day-to-day life. So what are those principles then? So we obviously talked a little bit about people, but what sort of principles do you, I guess, kind of operate by? Or is there a kind of a model or a series of models that you'd like to use in your practice? The... Um, so I weave that cloth. The thing, the thing that's got me hooked for the past two years, um, and I really do want to write about this, is what's called integrity. The integ- uh, what's called integrity. You know, people have heard of the word integrity. That, that, there are a couple of Canadian clinical psychologists. Um, and I bet you if you Google integrity model, you'll not find what I'm about to describe in the first few pages. Maybe later on, it's relatively obs- obscure. Um, and they basically argue that um, human suffering and human well-being is dependent on the degree to which the individual lives by their values, honours their values. And from there, they say, so if you're doing that, you need to honour the integrity stool, the three legs of integrity, so a stool with three legs. You need to live honestly with other people and yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Stop making stuff up. Have the difficult conversations with people. Second leg, do so in a way that closes the gap, though, between you and other people. So you can either move towards people, build a bridge off of the olive branch, move away from people, choose not to connect with them, ignore them, or move against people, which is like head-to-head, so argumentative, not constructive, you know, um, try to be the, the judge and persecutor, if you like, um, and take responsibility then for what's yours. That's the third leg. So 
don't take responsibility for other people's stuff. That's their stuff. To do so is to steal them of integrity. But then don't underrun what's yours. Don't blame other people for things that belong to you, which will probably resonate with that book you're reading about. Just now, so there's your three things. Honesty, closing the gap with other people and living uh, with responsibility. So that's how I typically move around and then very much depending on the client will work with them from there. But that's the starting point for me. Nice. And in terms of the philosophy, does that always come back to integrity or are there different kind of, I guess, ways that you operate from that with different clients or different contexts? But, I mean, that integrity stuff is, is like what I try, I try to do. The, it's the modus operandi. It's the, you know, the, the failure to do so is the, is the thing that often keeps me awake at night. But then I wonder why I'm not sleeping and it's often because I've shied away from a difficult conversation, for instance. Um, with regards to working with the clients, um, I'm a great believer in, in using the power or the, or the knowledge or the wisdom of the other person or at least working collaboratively. I know stuff, but you know stuff too. And together we'll, we'll probably be able to mesh that together and come up with something pretty helpful. So I, I, I work from what's called quite a pluralistic position. So if you sat down with me, Rob, and said, as a performer, say in, in rugby, which is, I know your sport you're often working in, um, I, I'm, I'm lacking in confidence. At some point, I'm going to start asking you questions around what you think is going to help you. Which is odd, isn't it? Because you think I'm going to, I, I, the expert, should tell you what's going to help you with confidence. But if we can tap into what you think is going to help you and build from there and complement it maybe with a wee bit of the knowledge that I know, then we can maybe move forward. And I'll maybe draw from some of that stoic philosophy or if it's applicable, maybe mention some of the existential stuff or some of the Eric Byrne stuff on transactional analysis. I'm not going to go into it, but, you know, we'll... we'll We'll use what we, what we both know to move mm. forward. I think that's it's kind of a reflection of the way coaching has evolved, I guess, over the last few decades, away from this idea that I'm the guru and the font of knowledge and you're the chess pieces on the board and I'm just trying to arrange them in a strategy that executes what I have in my head to this idea that actually it's a collaboration and do you know what? There's feedback. goes two ways. It's not just me telling you where you need to be. It's also the player saying, well, actually, I feel like when I'm in this position, I can see or scan better or there's more options available and it's, it's that feedback loop between player and coach a similar kind of concept I guess yeah I think so I think so I think you are seeing that aren't you it's certainly one of the, the things we are looking at or one of the things I'm interested in the conversations of the coaches at the academy is around the environment that they, they create as coaches so rather than blaming the individual for not being confident enough, for motivated enough, for aggressive enough, which is a popular buzzword in uh, football, I know that as well in rugby, um, we can ask the question, well, in what way are you, the coach, impacting that? Like, Where are you maybe not supporting this player in such a way um, where they're not able to demonstrate those behaviours you associate with aggression? Um, and often that comes from having a conversation with them. Mm. Um, and I think uh, the coaches at heart are, are um, from what I can gather, um, very open to having those conversations. And, and we do a lot of work around those. And 
you know, I think, yeah, it's that sort of, oh, no, I'm always interested in what does it take for a coach to be able to do that. So it's having the knowledge and then the know-how of what it maybe looks like in practice, and that very much depends on the context that you're working in. Um, but particularly, it requires the, the, the coach to park his ego and his need to demonstrate competency. Definitely. And it has, and also mean hers, you know. I'm using it um, multiple ways there. Um, and that can be tough, isn't it? Because you've done all the coaching qualifications. You've maybe got pressure from above or being observed from other people. And therefore, you need that person or that squad or that group of players or whoever to do X, whatever mm. that is. Mm. I yeah. guess it's, that's that always people talk about the art and science of coaching, don't they? And I yes. think the science is all okay, the technicalities of strategy, tactics, you know, where your body positioned, the biomechanics, the, the force the outputs, all that kind of stuff. But the art is that balance of push versus pull. Now, I can push you, you know, to where I want you to be, or I can pull you by asking those good questions and helping you to think more widely and come to a similar conclusion. Now, it might take a longer process than me just saying, go and stand over there. But actually, when you're standing over there now, you understand why you're there. You understand what your job is and you understand the process we've got to. This is your part to play versus yeah. just going, I don't really know why I'm still in the wing, but this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've not created problems, obviously, have you? But at the same time, you've not got shared mental models there. So you've not got a shared mental model. My understanding of it anyway is how do I understand what you know, Rob, and how do I share what I know? And, and if we can. Basically, that the more I can ask you to describe to me what your understanding of that position you're playing in, out in the wing, the more I can compare it to what I understand it to be and go, well, actually, no, I mean this. That's a human interaction, that, you know, which is the, if you want the, the art of coaching. You know, and it's the more we can do that, then the more we're creating problem solvers um, on the pitch. But at the same time, the more we're to tap into this phrase, the more we're developing their intrinsic motivation as well, because mm -hmm. we're letting them have a, a wee bit of autonomy, I suppose, and how things are maybe decided. I mean, the under nines are maybe going to struggle with this. Mm -hmm. But you're 16s, you're 18s, you're under 21s, 23s, you know, when they're into, or pushing into adulthood. Um, they're the times when we're developing young adults. You know, mm -hmm. for people to become men and women in society, and I would believe in that as well. So why why not have these conversations mm -hmm. at the right time, though? <laughs> yeah, I think it's also an interesting one because actually, if you think about it from a coaching perspective, it actually relieves a lot of pressure off the coach because if you are this dictatorial, authoritarian figure who's the font of all knowledge, when the rubber hits the road and things don't work, people look to you for the answer, don't they? And you're supposed to know the answer because you're the font of knowledge. But actually, if it's this collaborative thing then it's more of an analytical thing of, okay, what's, what's the breakdown here? Why is that happening? Why, why are we disjointed in this position? Why did we lose the ball there? Why did we you know, feel that we didn't, couldn't get there fast enough? Or, you know, it's more of a answering better questions or asking better questions. And there's less pressure on the coach to have all the answers within their disposal. And there is those situations where they can go, do you know what? I don't know the answer, but let's figure it out together. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It takes a lot of pressure off the coach. Mm. But like you say, you have to have the comfort to admit that you don't know everything in order to do that. Yeah, and that takes humility, doesn't it? I, I think it it takes a lot of the character of the coach to be able to do that. You know, and I think that gets it's in in many ways. I think that gets overlooked 
from some of the CPD I've seen for coaches. Mm -hmm. um, again, the other coach CPD uh, tutors and coach mentors will critique me for that, and I'm more happy for that to happen. Um, I just think it's just an under that, that just that undertone there. I suppose that emotional element that might be the the hurdle doesn't get spoken about. Um, which, of course, philosophy does mm, mm. go back to our start, you know, and that's trying to make sense of that wee barrier, hurdle, whatever you want to call it, that sense of self, the pride that we have in ourselves. Mm. And I guess, I mean, it's a, it's a big topic that we, we might be about to fall into a deep, dark hole, but ego okay. and coaching are pretty uh, often hard to separate, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I, I, because I, 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 I mean, I don't know where I know where to go with this because at the same time, I, you can go, well, no, because it might be the, God knows, I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, yes, they're hard to separate. <laughs> people, I think, I, I don't think you can chuck the ego entirely. I think you, you know, it, it provides some sort of good, you know, that you, you've got some sort of principles and values. It's just the, how do you throw your ego around in the environment that you, you walk in, you know? I certainly wouldn't want anyone, or, or, I mean, if they chose to do so off their own back, then that's amazing, but I'm not advocating here that everyone should turn into a Buddhist monk and wear a sort of toga, shave their head and walk in with sandals into the next training pitch. Absolutely not. I, I, I guess I'm just saying, I guess I'm just asking, asking that question as I do at heart, is how do you impact the environment? And there'll be good elements of that and there'll be not so good or not as effective. Um, and that will be very much dependent on the individual. I can give you an example. One of the coaches, we should be asking questions. One of the coaches, I was watching them or listening, and we mic them up and we're listening to the coaching sessions. And of course, I know nothing about um, the technical and tactical and indeed the physical of football. Um, I acknowledge the importance, of course, of it. Um, but I'm interested in the, the site. You know, how, how do you communicate? What's your relationship like with the boys? Um, and one of the things he sort of said was he was keen for questions to be a big part of his coaching. You know, so having a structure to the coaching session, but asking questions in a way that I would encourage them to problem solve during the game sort of thing. You know, so it's not getting totally rid of your coaching notes, you know. It's, a merging of both um, and he would ask questions from the observation but the questions he was asking is because he was looking for a point that supported his argument so it was almost like he would then discredit every answer I mean he wasn't, he wasn't as brutal as that but it was almost like he was cycling through all the answers the boys would give him so that he would get to the answer that he wanted because that's the point he wants to make which of course isn't genuine or authentic questioning you're not you know, so then all the boys are trying to do in that in that game, i.e. the game of the coach asks the question and the answer not the players. All the boys are doing in that game is trying to ask, answer the, the question the coach has in mind, not the answer they have in mind themselves as problem solvers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's often one of the things. So now having been on um just did my rugby level two last year, and one of the things that, that people were talking about was about the use of questioning and moving away from this you know, explicit coaching model to more of a, you know, kind of questioning model. And it kind, 
it, like you say, it can be a little bit inauthentic because if you already have a script in your head and an athlete comes back with an answer that doesn't fit the script, you kind of almost want to go, no, that's, that's the wrong answer. Give me, a better, give me the right answer. And actually, you need to... Give me my that. answer. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> what you're saying doesn't suit my agenda. Um, so it's, it's having the, I guess, the open-mindedness to go, hmm, actually, that's, I hadn't thought of that. Where do we see that fitting? Or how do, how do you see that transpiring if that moves into the next phase of play? Or yeah. Again, it's, it's like that guided discovery, exploration kind of style of coaching versus the, no, that's the wrong answer, next yeah so and that that's interesting you said that like that actually because right so we're acknowledging that coaching expertise is important that's why you're in the role in the first place so you can't throw throw it out of course we're acknowledging that um but the relationship's different there isn't it like that guided discovery you're not so much standing in front of them as you see in these uh, SAS, are you fit enough things where you're barking the orders and pointing in a direction they all run past you in the direction you're pointing. Instead, to use a, um, a bit of a metaphor that's used in solution-focused brief therapy, where you're standing beside them, tapping them in the shoulder, just asking questions, asking them, what do you see ahead of you, sort of thing, um, to help them describe and subsequently plan what needs to happen from what they see that I mean that's tough going you know requires patience you know and mm. parking off the agenda and whatnot and it's also I guess empowering for the players isn't it because you're acknowledging do you know what you you have either valued experience or a valued perspective or opinion of what's happening here you're not coming to the table completely a blank slate you've maybe been in this situation before and how did that play out how did this what was successful what was unsuccessful what you know prior experience have you been or have you had of this series of events playing out it's actually acknowledging the player to say you're not this blank cyborg who's just here to follow the instructions you've got a valuable perspective to bring to the team or to the event um and we want to draw that out of you yeah yeah definitely i think so uh, i think that's a a really empowering relationship to have with players, squatted players, um, or a player, or athlete. Um, and I think you're, you're doing them the world of good um, as a person and as, uh, as an athlete for that. You know, I, as an athlete, you're getting them engaged in the sport and, and understanding maybe the nuances of the sport rather than you telling them the nuances. You know, so not, are, are they really getting it or are they just repeating back what you've told them? Um, and as a person, you're you're encouraging them to to think, to observe, to notice, and and discern the difference between doing option A compared to when we did option D. Even if option B was three weeks ago, well, similar situation. What did you learn? You know, cool. Mm. You know? So digging a little bit deeper then into your personal situation, what what is it that drives you? What is your kind of underlying purpose for the interest in psychology and the desire to delve into that? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> the, uh, and the reason because that's a tough one was that uh, uh, the, um, we should probably acknowledge that we've had this conversation already and the recording didn't fail, uh, recording failed. So I'm, I'm <laughs> let's tee this up again. Right? Um, so I always say like that question, like why do you do what you do? What what's your why? Sort of thing. I always think that's like 
you know, it reminds me of all the Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek stuff about the, um, was it the powery wire, you know? Whereas uh, he talks about the, the why, the how, and the what, and oh, you should always start with why, why you do what you do. And I think that's great, and I really do enjoy it, but I don't know. Like, I've not got this snappy strap line of why, like Apple, which might be changed the world or whatever Apple's is, um, that you could put out in a tweet and have plenty of characters for hashtags left over. You know, like, thinking about it, and we spoke about it the last time we did the call, um, it is just genuinely a, a curiosity. And to add to that, just an eagerness or a keenness or an enjoyment in just helping people move forward and what they care about. Uh, but doing so in a, in a humane way, I think sometimes the underlying message sometimes with sp- sports psych, performance psych, no, and I'm saying underlying. I think it is changing um, massively, but just as a maybe as a Joe Bloggs public perception is like motivational, motivational, boom, 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 boom. And nah, that's not going to help. I mean, it'll get you so far, but I mean, as an SNC coach yourself, Rob, you'll you'll appreciate that being motivational, motivational, and being boom, 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 boom as a philosophy in the gym equals injury. You know, mm-hmm. so it's. I think it's applying you know it's just a curiosity in helping people move forward in ways that are meaningful to them applying a broad range of ideas to their lives to their relationships with whoever that that may well be whatever that area is that they want to move forward in um so i think that i think that's that's it does that, does that even make sense i mean i'm not going to get that written on the wall as some motivation i mean that part of my wife would go mad if i had written that on the wall as a motivational paragraph essay <laughs> manifesto no but i think i mean again if you distill that down curiosity and eagerness to help i mean they're completely valid and completely you can see how that would lead you to the to where you are now because that curiosity of asking you know, why, why do people think the way they think? How could they think better? How can I, what questions can I ask to prompt them to think a little deeper into why they're doing things and how they could improve the way they do things? You know, it's easy to see how that being a base of motivation would lead to the journey you've taken. Yeah. Well, I like it when you put that there because I, I'm a big believer as well that, you know, our sources of motivation can be narrow and they can be broad. And the narrow ones, like, you know, talk about the Edinburgh Marathon, you know, get, for me, the, the goal there or the motivation is to get to the start line of the Edinburgh Marathon. Um, because it's a long time to be training and not get injured. Um, so that's quite a narrow one, isn't it? And, you know, we all have maybe goals that motivate us. But, yeah, suppose what you're hitting at there is that curiosity is, is broad enough that it's, it's almost vague enough that you can apply it in different ways. And I think I quite, I quite like that, um, that idea of, of things like that. So I'm trying to think, like, hope is another word. I mean, sorry if I'm going down a rabbit hole, man. You can no, no, let's do it. Um, hope's one. Um, so often, so there's been some research on um, spinal cord injuries in, in various athletes um, by Brett Smith and Andrew Sparks. And they, they looked at hope um, for athletes that developed these uh, debilita- debilitating conditions. Um, and they found two types of hope, for instance. So they found concrete hope, 
which would probably fall more in line with traditional positive thinking where you're thinking like, right, well, you know what, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to um, do my rehab and do my physio as much as I possibly can and I will get back to normal, whatever that is. So it's a very concrete image of hope. Um, and some of the researchers um, weren't demonising that type of hope, they were just sort of describing that one way. But it's a transcendental hope that they're getting at, transcendental hope. Um, is more of a, on a journey. I know my life has drastically changed in ways that other people couldn't possibly comprehend and even I struggle to comprehend. But you know what, like relationships are just far more valuable to me now than what they were previously. And I don't know what that means in the future, but I know I want to be heading in that direction. You know, so it's very not non-specific. And I think they were kind of making the rough link in their research that the concrete hope ones maybe suffered more emotionally because they were like they had this yardstick to always compare themselves to. Are they getting closer? Are they moving further away from? Um, whereas the transcendental hope ones were very much a wee bit more at ease, I suppose. Um, you know, albeit in horrendous injury. Um, I think it was in rugby players actually who picked up. Is the, the the research group. Um, so my that was a long way to go to get the value of lack of clarity and a, a, a broader source of motivation as opposed to specific sources, albeit specific sources are important. <laughs> so digging a bit more deeply into, I guess, sports psychology um as we as we know i mean pretty much every area of sports science has myths or or misunderstandings around it and sports psychology is obviously one that has quite a lot i mean we've kind of spoken before about how people you know have this idea of it's kind of like voodoo and you come in and say some magic words and someone's suddenly you know back to normal or this kind of problem-based idea that you know it's actually a reactive um strategy rather than something that we can use proactively and then finally this kind of hacks and tricks kind of idea that actually we can you know we can hack the mind or there's these performance tricks that will help you level up um so it'd be i think it'd be worthwhile to kind of go through and dispel some of those kind of myths that surround sports psychology let's do it you choose you choose first one so let's go with the kind of the voodoo thing they're like it's all in the black box and there's no i guess formatted or you know it's all all wishy-washy yeah so, wishy-washy, to pick that apart a little bit more then, it's tr it is tricky, it is tricky, the sports psychology. Because in your field, Rob, S&C, not to minimise it, but just to starkly draw it out, if you give someone a set to do X number of bicep curls, X number of times, three times a week for X number of weeks, they're going to get bigger muscles. Yeah? Whereas sports psychology, we, we can't sit there and go, right, if you sit down and imagine yourself putting this wee white ball into the, the golf ball into the hole, you know, that you'll develop 40% more neurons. We're not going to be able to do that. Now, there's evidence for imagery. We can get on to that for the third one. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, I, I suppose a good sports psychologist would be working not as, I say, good, would be trying to work as much as possible in a collaborative way with the people that brought them in. And part of that would be having a conversation along the lines of 
if this piece of work was to be of some sort of use, what would be a wee bit different? Yeah. Um, so we'd, we'd start defining what good looks like and certainly my approach would be right, so what, what are all the things that we might notice? Are there, are there any numbers that we might see differences and changes in? Um, and I'm very much open to those being numbers as reflected in progress through rehab to being able to do more on the yo-yo test. I'm not saying that psychology has impacted the cardiovascular capacity of an athlete. I'm just saying that, well, okay, if this is part of the whole picture, then we'll hopefully see all these sort of things. Um, but yeah, they are, they are brought in often as a problem fix. Sports psychologists can try and fix problems. Um, probably not in the way most people assume they would be by some magical techniques. Um, they might help, but not necessarily entirely. Um, but I think a lot of sports psychology is now moving to try and encourage a more proactive way of thinking. So I alluded to working through the coaches um, at the club. You know, so we can be reactive and, and work with individual players as and when who are maybe struggling with, say, anxiety before a big game. But if we do that, every single time a player does that, the coach is going to have to refer to some external expert. But what if we were then to upskill the coach in some way by giving them a little bit of knowledge around performance anxiety and how they might be able uh, to impact that by asking good questions or suggesting wee things that they have done in the past that helps or suggesting um, some basic psychological technique that might help the athlete. You know, so therefore you're then upskilled the coach and you can guarantee that conversation is probably going to filter through their coaching in other ways as well. So it's more proactive, isn't it? You're then creating an environment that's a bit more, to use the phrase, psychologically informed for that. So it's not, so voodoo black, do, black box, black box, we've come down to the individual practitioner or practitioners working to define what good enough would look like, what the behavioural differences would maybe be noticed. That's the way I go. Other sports sites would be different. Um, and problem oriented, I, but it can also be proactive. And that's one example that it could be proactive in. So what about this idea that, that sports psychology is just a collection of hacks and tricks to shortcut your, your brain? So, my understanding of the research is that these hacks and tricks, because this is probably quite a stringent measure of application, but these are some clinical sports psychologists, so people who like to work in sport but work with clinical issues, you know, so like eating disorders and depression and whatnot, and athlete or, or coaching or sports staff populations. And they applied the stringent measures of research required for things to be accepted by traditionally saying the nice guidelines that, are, that determine whether something is used by the NHS. And in their review of the papers at the date of publication, which was way back in you know 2010, so the time your know, first decade of the century, um, argued that the, the the use of techniques is experimental at best there's not necessarily strong evidence that this research um, that these techniques imagery or visualization uh, self-talk and so on have a big impact on performers in sport 
they have research, they have evidence in other populations, clinical populations that we see at the hospitals and counselling and whatnot. But within the athletic population, because they've not got the numbers, so they can't do randomised control trials and all these sort of things, we can't make the conclusion that it's uh, as direct as that. So I, as a practitioner, wear them very lightly. Um, so there's merit to them. There's a whole road range of them. Um, but if an athlete's anxious before he goes on the pitch, yeah, sure, a relaxation thing might 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 help. But you also got to think, why are you anxious? Like, what sort of goals are you setting for yourself? Why are you setting those sort of goals? What are you worried about the relation? What the coach is going to say? What's what's that relationship like? And actually, you know, and, and these are then questions that start to move so far away from techniques, the simple solutions. But if we go down the path of these questions, we probably get to more sustainable possible answers. If done so, I believe, in a more collaborative manner, as opposed to the expert solving the problem. So techniques have a place, but you could, I suppose, question the sustainability. Mm. I guess it's maybe the case that, I don't know, from my understanding, those kind of hacks or tricks are more of a superficial kind of symptom treatment rather than actually digging down to the deeper cause, which is kind of what you're suggesting. That actually, the reason you're feeling anxiety is because you're setting unrealistic goals. So actually, we can treat the anxiety, but actually the real issue is your goals are unrealistic and we need to go and have a discussion about what success really looks like for you. Yeah. So often you, you can only do two things. You can do the surface level, let's treat the symptoms, as you were saying. I never use the word treat because that's a medical model. They're applying the, wearing my white coat and my stethoscope as a physician. You know, I never, that's not how I roll. Uh, but going with that language, you can treat the symptoms. But yeah, let's have the human to human conversation about what this means to you. You know, if there is an unrealistic goal and how helpful is that for you? And let's imagine, play it out in your head that you didn't make it, you know, to go back to the stoic stuff. Then what? You know, and, I suppose you'd, you'd want them to get to a point where they go, well, I'll still be okay. Mm. Albeit disappointed, because that's normal. Mm. Uh, and so there's a lot in there where you can sort of, there's an opportunity in that to educate them about life, to engage them in deeper questioning. That's not about, you know, the philosophy that you and I spoke about right at the start, necessarily, but just to bolster the person mm. that's going to finish sport at whatever age depending on the sport but what say mid-20s early 30s at best maybe hang about as a coach in some variety um but more likely they're not coming out of the sport so they're gonna to have to go into the real world not that coaching is not in the real world and so on but you know what i mean like they're gonna move away from this world of sport so we may as well nurture that aspect of this person person mm. first then after isn't it after all yeah, I just want to dig a little deeper into that that kind of problem-based idea. So I know we have fairly similar kind of philosophies on that in terms of actually, and this is true both of S&C and psychology, that actually most coaches are already engaging in this kind of stuff. Um, it's just a case of upgrading the quality of what they're doing. So for example, from an S to give you an S&C example, a lot of coaches say, I haven't got time to do strength and conditioning. And I would argue to them, well, you, you run a pretty ineffective warm-up three times a week. If you actually took that warm-up, Put some structure to it and actually had some progressions or regressions you just won yourself three s and c sessions a week now to put it into psychology terms coaches are giving feedback all the time aren't they yes. they're giving encouragement or discouragement or they're asking questions or creating constraints and all those kind of things so again similar to 
my example, it's just a case of equipping a coach to deliver things more effectively or more appropriately. So yeah. what kind of, I guess, if we were to give people some take home kind of ideas, how do you see coaches being enabled to improve the kind of sports psychology that they maybe unknowingly are already using in their practices? Yeah. So definitely in answering that question, I would hop back to your other one about influences. And I've really liked the stuff by so, uh, Dave Collins, Andrew Cruikshank and Annie McNamara. Um, and another guy called Andy Hill. So they're from Lancaster Uni. Andy Hill works at Blackburn um, Football Academy, Blackburn Rovers Football Academy. And they, they, their research, or part of the research is on psychological characteristics of developing excellence, PCDEs. And you know, they've identified um, through interviewing athletes who have made it in their sport, how did you manage to navigate the bumps in the road, if you like? What were some of the things that helped? And they identified like, you know, nine skills or characteristics so we're getting close to that technique stuff again and these these characteristics or skills go from focus distraction control seeking and using social support planning and self-organizing being committed and so on right so that's been quite influential and in then how we frame things for the coaches so one of the pcds say as Commitment. So one of the conversations we're having with the coaches now is, is that they want to focus on in their squad is the idea of commitment. So we sit down and go, okay, what does that look like for you as a coach on the pitch? And ideally get your players to have this conversation as well. So you're getting a shared understanding. There's that, what's in your head, what's in my head, let's get it on the table. What does that look like on the pitch? What behaviours would we see? what the camera see so when we're looking at it in video analysis we're able to see it you know so it might be things like um when a player's receiving the ball all players around them are talking to them to say man on yeah or you got time or touch and turn i don't even know if that's football language that's how novice i am when it comes to football language um you know so you get a list of behaviors off that um and then so building on that we would say, well, let's teach it so let's start talking about that in day-to-day practice mind lads this this session we're looking at communication mind what we all said a couple of weeks ago about what communication looks like what did we can anyone remember boom 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 but that on the, or on the pitch in this example we maybe test it so we were then going with that coach in particular was one of the realized one of the things we realized was that because coaches talk quite broadly their language isn't necessarily specific and um, not all coaches some coaches do. Humans do, though, definitely. So the players don't communicate. That's what they say. But this, that, what they actually mean, and what he, he actually meant, was when under pressure, players don't give those instructions to other players, you know, or to the player that's receiving the ball. So it's not necessarily the person receiving the ball that they're having a go at is not communicating. When they start to be specific, they mean the players around them, which is why I used that example as what commitment looks like. If you're committed, you'll be communicating uh, these instructions to that person receiving the ball. So we would then test it. So teach it, test it. So we'd make, as the coach, if he's focusing on communication, he'd maybe make drills such that the players don't have enough time. So they're under pressure a lot more, in which case they're then having to put the onus for communication on other players. Yeah, around them. Teach it, test it, and the final T, three T's we can talk about is tweak it. Um, so let's feed back, let's stop the drill, or finish the drill anyway, 
and let's have a, a chat. What happened? How did it go? What did we do well? Where were our successes in line with communication? Because we're talking about commitment. We said that communication is part of that. I mean, communication and commitment are different things. I'm just sort of giving an example of how that conversation's went with one of the coaches at the club. Um, and that, that's how you then sort of building that athlete-coach relationship again and encourage their own reflection and, and, and sharing the coach, sharing his observations as well. And, you know, okay, well, how can we do it differently? And you repeat and the tweaking bit or the feedback bit and the teaching bit sort of tie in each other, don't they? Yeah, because you're mm. teaching it again by having that conversation. So that, 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 that's that. So one, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so, because people, you know, I guess there's a lot of um, governing body models that, that kind of try to be holistic and they talk about the technical, the tactical, the physical, the psychological, this kind of stuff. And then we just go and teach the technical and the tactical. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, if we want, if we've got a free kick routine that we've got on a Saturday, we're probably going to practice that during training on Tuesday or Thursday, whatever. If we're expecting our players to communicate to a certain level on Saturday, well, we need to practice that in training as well. You know, all, all these things, all the elements that we discuss, we, they are all things that need to be practiced just like our, our technical, just like our tactical. But we so often just pay those lip service and have little five-minute conversations about it or use generic terms. Or you're not communicating. Well, what is communicating? Is it, is it pointing to where I want the ball to go or is it asking for the ball or what yeah. is it? Yeah, that's right. So one of the, the things that we, this is... You know, this is a behaviourist way of thinking about things. So, this is one of the things we do, or one of the questions we're often asking in the academy is, "What would the camera see?" So, if you were communicating more, what would the camera see? And and everyone would see it. Maybe describe that a little bit different. But you just you know, as a squad, you'd maybe look for consensus on that. So you'd maybe be pointing into spaces, or you'd maybe be putting your hand up. Or, I don't know. You know. It just totally depends on the context and, and the level and the age group and all these sort of things. Um, but if the camera can see it, then you're able to tag it on video analysis. Mm. You know, and you're able to then have the conversations during video analysis sessions or, or ping out on WhatsApp. You know, what about this, lads? What do we think? Type thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. What did the camera see? Mm. <laughs> Nice. Um, so, I might preempt him with your next question here, Rob. Mate. A good book that I enjoyed, football, uh, albeit, is one by Chris Harwood. So, it's by Chris Harwood and Richard Anderson, and it's called Coaching Psychological Skills in Youth Football, Developing What's Called the Five C's Model. Um, so, he you know, Chris Harwood was a sports like or is a sports psychology researcher back in like 2008-2010. Um, put together a program called the Five C's, which was like confidence, commitment, communication, concentration, and control. Now, there, that's his model. I know what I was saying about communication and commitment matching, but that's just the way I work within the academy in the framework we're using. But nonetheless, that's a good model, right? And and that's a good book because that book, if if any coach, whilst it's in football, I reckon any coach could read that and because what they do is they say, right, say you want to work in confidence, well, here's some drills in football that we think as a coach, if you set them up and delivered it and it mentioned these points and spoke about these points, you'd start to build confidence, for instance, in the players. 
coaches are creative people. And I reckon coaches of any sport will probably be able to read that to get ideas. So an understanding the five sheets model and then start to get ideas of how that maybe looks like in practice. Because then you're starting to teach these things in context as opposed to in a workshop. Mm. I think that's um, a really good point that you said about coaches being creative. It's funny, like having, you know, played football all my life and now working in rugby, you realise that coaches like to think that their sport's unique um, and that their sport's unlike any other sport. And actually what you realise is top coaches, be it Alex Ferguson or Eddie Jones, go out and scout other sports for ideas, methods, strategies, um, because they realise actually, do you know what? Football and rugby are both invasion games. Hockey's an invasion game. Netball's an invasion game. You know, there's the same principles. We need to go forward. We need to make some sort of tackle or block. We need to pass. So there's, there's elements of the game that, yes, while the technical skill itself is different, I still need to get the ball to you. Now, I might be passing with my hands in rugby or kicking with my feet in football, but it's still a pass. And actually, yeah, I can take that drill and I can just change it for rugby by making it like this or change it for netball by making it like this. But as you said, the principles or the underlying constructs of how we're going to create confidence via this kind of set of ideas is completely transferable between sports. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think that's it. You know, it takes a wee bit of work, um, but if you've not got the resources to, you know, pay for a sports psychologist and bring them in, you know, the next best thing is to read what other sports psychologists and coaches have done in relation to it. So I think that that is a good book because Harwood stuff. Um, Camilla Knight and I think Chris Harwood again did a book quite recently called is it Sports Psychology and Youth Sport um, they, they did quite a good one in that like as, as a chapter different sort of psychology related stuff uh, in each chapter and I guess the, the interested coach would probably read that and go right so what, what might that look like in my setting who might be the people I have to have conversations with to try and put it into place? Um, and, and yeah, what, what would good enough be? Because you're not going to be able to just like pluck it up out of the book and then perfectly implant it into your environment. Um, so a curious coach would be one that you know, I suppose is open to the ambiguities of putting it into practice. But you know that, that's that's the beauty of it because it's then putting it in practice. You start to maybe tweak it and adapt it. To your way so that, that's quite a good resource as well and, and anything by um dave collins annie mcnamara uh, i think they recently wrote a, a book on talent development and certainly a few of the more senior coaches at the club um have read that as well and that, that again loads of wee ideas in there so that's, that's quite good and that's where that three t's thing comes from teacher tested tweak it um, from them as well so you know they're, they're quite good resources to dip in there. Mm. So just going more specific, as you've kind of alluded to already, we're obviously in the midst of the, the coronavirus and that's kind of testing people in numerous different ways. Um, I was just wondering what kind of, if, if there's any advice or any kind of strategies that you might suggest for athletes and coaches who are kind of obviously in a completely unusual period in terms of in terms of sport is there any from both from a mental health and from a sports psychology kind of perspective advice that you might have first and foremost i think if you going back to our start mate you've got to read about epictetus or um marcus aurelius and, and see what wisdom they bring to the world for you um this is a good start i think it's more sports specific you know it's it's 
there is the novelty, I suppose, in all this, albeit the, the sort of, you know, the an anxiousness of it all. Um, but there is the novelty and the downtime time to to sit in, and, and for the coaches anyway, do a wee bit of reading and, you know, I've mentioned a few of the books. What, what was the website? Is it Believe? Believe Perform? Believe Perform HQ, pretty good. Loads of blogs on there about site-related constructs. Again, you're not going to be able to directly pluck it out and put it in to your environment. But you can start thinking how might that look, who are the people after have, have conversations with, who might struggle with it a little bit, where might the support need to be in order to make these things happen. Um, that could be quite good. Um, good way to use of time. For athletes, it is a great use of time to, to, to be using some of the, or thinking about some of the skills that are at best, from what I understand, experimental, unless someone's going to tell me they've been double-blind, randomised control trials done with them um, in sport populations, um, athletic populations. But, you know, so an athlete could be sitting down and, and reflecting on where their weaknesses are in their sport. Um, I'm thinking of a goalie who maybe struggles in making decisions on whether to come out for the ball during crosses um, or corner kicks. So he could probably be sitting there playing various scenarios out in his head and seeing himself doing that successfully. And even if he did that for five minutes a day, I mean, it's not prescriptive. I'm going to say this as if I'm some sort of doctor with my white lab coat on again, you know, three times a week for, you know, two weeks or four weeks. I mean, just, I don't know how often they'd have to do it, but it's, it, you've got this dead time, haven't you, that you could be using to be thinking about these sort of things. Another thing that an athlete might want to do is sit there and, and ask, ask themselves the question, what are the, I'm hesitating here, there's an asterisk coming, right? What are the top 10 qualities of a top athlete in my sport? And list those 10 qualities. The asterisk is like, you're more than an athlete. So what are the top 10 qualities of a, a good human being, you know, um, would be my preferred question. But anyway, it's sport related. So what are the top 10 qualities of um, a top athlete in my sport? Put a wee sentence next to each of the words. You know, if you've got ten listed ten words like hard working, motivated, which are the same, I suppose. Um, I'm mean, totally mind blank. Um, adaptable, organised, whatever. Um, we sentence just to define it a little bit. So you just define it in your own words, and then one to ten, give yourself a score on each other, and then do where would I want to be in three months' time? Because we could be in here for three months. Um, all right, so what's the biggest difference? Which ones are maybe more important for you? And let's say being organised is important. There's a big gap though. I'm a two and I want to be an eight. All right, well, we'll make a plan. What are you going to do to try and help yourself become more organised in sport and day-to-day -day life? Because there's a lot of time to be start trying to organise a bit. You know? And then you can go back in three months' time and do it again, see if there's any differences. Mm. I'm going to come full circle right back to uh, the stoicism before we kind of finish this off. And I was, uh, have you read uh, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday? No, mate, you've mentioned this a few times. I've not read it yet. No. Do you recommend it? You obviously yeah, do. yeah. I would, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you've read into stoicism a bit more, then it's probably beginner level, but it is, it's, it's, it's a good introduction. But he has in there a story that I was trying to remember the guy's name because it's so applicable to the situation right now. The guy's name is Demosthenes. And Demosthenes was a kid who came from a wealthy family, from what I understand. And his dad, also called Demosthenes, 
was uh, or died, but the guardians of the Demosthenes the Junior basically ripped the family off, took his money, and left. Um, so what Demosthenes the Junior kid did is basically built himself an underground den, went in there for months, potentially years, to basically learn the law and learn how to become a great orator because he had a stammer, and then came out from that underground kind of period of education and defeated his guardians, got the money back, got the wealth back. And I just thought, wow, there's a real parable for where we are right now. Like you've got this opportunity to go into that underground lair, build whatever skills you need, build whatever you know um, abilities you need to come out the other side better. And Definitely. I think you know that this is actually you know reframing things. This is a great opportunity for people to work on things that are perhaps underdeveloped. Yeah, definitely. And look, I mean, obviously, as I said, anxious times, and it's understandable if people are anxious um, about loved ones who are maybe in that vulnerable category. Um, but if, I suppose to use the word that I'm using a lot just now, if you're privileged enough to not be in that category and you've got that downtime, definitely, you know, there, there is this opportunity now to, you know, get down into the basement of the mind a wee bit and dig around and come out a wee bit more enlightened mm. as to who you are and how you want to be going forward, you know, and um, I think I think that that'd be wise. Mm. So where can people find out more about you and about your work? Uh, well, the website, uh, simplyperform.com uh, and Twitter uh, are the main ones. Um, I need to get on to my social media manager, like, because he's not pulling his weight on that Twitter feed. I think every once every six months, six to nine months, I'll maybe retweet something. Uh, but I am there. You have to put in a complaint to HR, mate. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I'm passively scrolling. That's what I'm doing. Like, all right, cool. But I am there. Um, and yeah, the website's the website, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, the stuff there. So they can get me through that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope um, you and your family are staying healthy, healthy and safe during this difficult period. And um, no doubt we'll touch base again soon in the future. Yeah, you too, Rob. Cheers, sir. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'd love to hear your reviews and comments, so please do leave us a review on your chosen podcast player. If you want to visit us on social media, you can do so using the handle at AthleticEvoUK on Twitter and Instagram, or by searching Athletic Evolution on Facebook. You can also visit us at www.athleticevolution.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.